I trust that you're in Daniel chapter 3. Let's start in a word of prayer and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning as needy people. Some of us this morning may be here because we just need your encouragement. Maybe we need your instruction from your word. Maybe we just need some fellowship with other believers because of the week that we've had. Maybe we need to be challenged by your Holy Spirit from your word on how we ought to be living our lives faithfully for you. God, there may be somebody here this morning who desperately needs to experience the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. And so they're here this morning, and they're going to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus. No matter what we need, God, we are needy people, and the only place that we can come, the only person that we can come to is you. Because you know exactly what we need, and you know how to fulfill it. And so, God, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would save us, if that's what our need is. God, we pray that you would just be with our time as we look into your scriptures. Pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read uh, Daniel chapter 3. It's not super long. Um, as I was thinking about this particular passage, there's all sorts of things that are coming to my mind. There are actually biblical characters that were coming to my mind. There are people throughout church history that, are coming to, that were coming to my mind. This is a familiar passage to many of us. If we grew up in the church, if we went to Sunday school, if we were old enough to actually have Sunday school, um, because we haven't had Sunday school here for quite a long time, actually. you would probably be familiar with this story. For some of you, it might be actually quite new to you. But we're going to look at three godly men and their response to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. And this is what's going on. One might argue, and some kind of do, that maybe Nebuchadnezzar took what Daniel's interpretation to his dream in the previous chapter, so events that were maybe not that long ago, and did something about it in a very tangible way. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And if you were with us when we talked about Daniel chapter 2, Daniel gave an interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it was the dream of a statue that was made of certain elements, and it was really a future prophetic dream that he was having. So Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to build a gold statue, all of it gold, not just a head of gold. And he set it up on the plain of Durin, the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps and the prefects and the governors, and this is going to get really tedious as I go through this, by the way, and all the other guys of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue of the king that the king had set up. And they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
I just want you to point out, I actually marked it in my Bible, and I want you to really pay close attention. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. The statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Just keep on getting that in your mind. This is an idol. This is a God that becomes, becomes something to be worshipped. And who made it and who set it up? Nebuchadnezzar. Just keep that in mind as we work through this. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, lyre, however you pronounce that, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall down face down and fall face down and worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation, language, fell down and worshiped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some of the Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the... See, I told you this is going to get tedious. <clears throat> and all the other musical instruments, they must fall down and worship this gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship it will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up. Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And pay attention to this question that he asks. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Keep in mind some of the things that are being said about Nebuchadnezzar and from Nebuchadnezzar because when we get into the next chapter, you're going to see what God does to a man that's this arrogant. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer on the, to this question. So he asked a question. Is there a God that can save you from my power? And they, they say, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Verse 17, it says, If the God that we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the, the power of you, the king. And if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, 
in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king commanded, command, excuse me, since the king's command was so urgent, the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the flames unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son, a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their head was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree to anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house will be made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. As I said, for many of us, this is a familiar story. We've heard about this. We saw it on the flannel graphs when our Sunday school teacher put the little characters up. And so... We know this story, it's familiar to us, and sometimes when it's familiar to us, we don't really pay attention to some of the things that are going on in this particular passage. There are three things that I kind of want to, that I would like to point out this morning when it comes to these individuals. Number one, we're going to be talking about men who are willing to stand for God, literally. They're supposed to bow down and worship an idol, instead they stayed standing. But they stood for God and they weren't going to bow to other idols, other gods, other statues. Number two, we're going to talk about men willing to accept the consequences of their obedience. And number three, we're going to talk about men who brought glory to God. We've already talked about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who had the statue made. Most likely, back in this particular time period, the statue was probably on a, a fairly tall um, platform foundation, making sure that this statue was high enough and visible for everybody to be able to see. Scripture tells us it was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's a pretty big statue when you think about it. We learn that it was Nebuchadnezzar that had it made, it was Nebuchadnezzar that had it set up, and it was an idol that was supposed to be worshipped. It's probably not, based on what commentary writers say, it was probably not necessarily a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself, though he was vain and proud and arrogant. 
It wasn't really the custom of the Babylonians to deify their kings, not like the pharaohs of Egypt and others. So it's very likely that Nebuchadnezzar probably didn't make the image of himself, but made, made the image of probably Nabu, which is probably his patron god. Because when Nebuchadnezzar takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to task, he talks about the fact that they're not willing to worship his gods and the statue that he put up. So likely, it was probably a statue representing one of his gods. We also want us to want to be very clear about the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the lone three, at least the lone three that Scripture reveals to us that said, you know what, we're not going to do what you're commanding us to do. And we need to understand that there were many more Jews in Babylon at, Babylon at this time than just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. We're told in verse 4, that a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded to do this. Which means that the magistrates and all of those represented the people that they looked after in the country of Babylon, in the, na in the, in the empire of Babylon. And if it's not them representing it, it's them and whoever it is that they brought with them that hear this. And it would have been not just Babylonians, but any group captive by the Babylonians that were under their empire's regime, which would have included the Jews that were taken as exiles from Israel and Judah, which means that there were other Jewish people that when commanded to bow down and worship the idol were doing exactly that. We can know that for certain because Isaiah alludes to that in chapter 44 and following, we also know that Moses back in Leviticus chapter 4 actually pre predicts or prophesies that when the children of Israel are in exile, they will worship other gods. They will be idol worshipers. So what we know for sure is this, that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they hear the music and everybody else bows down to the idol, and they're the lone one standing up, they're the lone ones standing up, and they've got Jewish family and friends that are there doing exactly what everybody else is doing. I want us to think about these men who are willing to stand up for God in a culture, in a society, in a situation where everybody else is bowing down to the idols. And what that would have looked like wherever they were, when that music plays, where people get to where they can see that statue and they all bow down and worship, and these three guys are the only ones standing up. And it's obvious to everybody who the three are that aren't doing what everybody else is doing. And we've already talked about it. We've already talked about what conversations may have been had with Daniel and these three men when they weren't willing to eat from the king's table when they first arrived in Babylon. You wonder what kind of conversations the other Jews are even saying to them. Look, what's the big deal, man? It's just a statue. Just bow down to it. 
Just do what they want you to do so that you don't get thrown into the furnace. Look, you're making us look bad. Look, why don't you just go along with what's going on so that we can just get along? Because we don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know what they're going to do to us if you guys keep on doing what you're doing. You wonder what those other Jewish people who had already decided that they were going to give themselves over to idol worship were saying to the three that weren't. And I got thinking about the idols of today, and we, we talk about that, and we, I think as evangelical Christians in 2022, really don't think that there are idols that we can fall into worship of. Because we get hung up on the statue that Nebuchadnezzar erected, or we look at other cultures around the world where they get little shrines, and they've got statues or images of their ancestors, and they like, well, we don't do that. That's not, we're not idol worshipers. We don't, have to have, we don't have to worry about that as Christians in Canada today. But then I got thinking, what are some of our idols? I think social acceptance is one of the biggest idols that we have today. They got to say the right thing in my workplace. I got to think the right thing. I got to do this. I got to do that. I've got to celebrate this. I can't celebrate this. And I'm going to continue to do it because you know what? I want my colleagues to accept me. I don't want to get the mockery when I step into the office or the workplace. I don't know if I'm going to keep my job if I stand up for what is biblically right and true. I might get fired. I don't want to have the stigma on me of not being inclusive or tolerant. That's what my society teaches me. I don't want to be a bigot. I don't want to be a racist. I don't want to be branded this or branded that. Or some Christians often like to frame it, I'm not loving people. I don't want to be somebody who doesn't love people. And so I go along to get along when the Holy Spirit in me is saying, you know what, you need to stand up for the truth of God's Word. You know what, that's an idol that your society is telling you to worship. And God's Word is saying, no, don't do that. And you're going, yeah, but you know what, everybody else is doing it. It could be any number of things. Maybe in your workplace there's the pressure to, to cut corners and to maybe be a little shady. Maybe not be quite honest with your customers. Maybe just, you know, cut some corners here and there so that you can save a few bucks because those that are above you are saying, you know what, you need to get, you know, your cost, in, your, your, your expending down. You need to be more cost effective in your office. You need to do whatever you need to do to make that happen. And you're going, man, I got pressure here. Am I going to cave or not? I don't know what it is that you might be facing. I'll be honest with you. As a pastor, as Pastor Andy was talking about how God was blessing in different ministries, as I even said, we see God's hand here. I face the pressure of making sure that I don't say things that might offend this group of people because you know what? What do I do if I say something from God's word that might upset somebody and all of a sudden the numbers go from 450 to 250? Let's be honest, it's, it's a legitimate pressure. Am I going to go along to get along so that I can keep what we've got? Or do I stay faithful and true to the Word of God no matter what? And I have to be honest with you, I truly ab 
like 100% believe that the reason why we see God blessing in this church ministry is simply because our desire is to be faithful to God and his word and be unapologetic about it. It's not because I'm a great preacher or because we have fabulous ministries. Don't get me wrong. I love the people I work with. I love the elders that we've got. You guys are wonderful. But it's God and all God that's doing what is happening here, not us. We're just endeavoring to be faithful. But you know what? It's hard. You feel the pressure. Oh, maybe I should be a little bit more pleasant. Maybe I should smile a little bit more. Maybe I should tell a few more jokes. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. And yet, God's telling us to be faithful to him, to be men and women that will stand up for God and say, I'm sorry, I cannot do this because it's contrary, contrary to the word of God. By the way, it's not my truth, it's not your truth, it's the truth or it's not. I watched a, 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 a street evangelism video recently. Uh, from a ministry that I quite appreciate. And this, the street evangelist was talking to a Jewish guy. He wasn't really a pra practicing Jewish guy. But in the midst of that exchange, where the street evangelism was desiring to share the gospel and reach this person for Christ on the street, the phrase, that the conversation started coming up. Well, that's your truth. You got to admit that that's your truth and I got my truth. And the street evangelist, street evangelist kept on coming back and saying, no, it's not my truth. It's the truth. It's either the truth or it's not. And he said, look, it, it, we can both be wrong, but we both can't be right. It's not possible. And they were talking about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior for mankind. And he was emphasizing the fact that that man needed to come to the place where he repented of his sin and trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he was saying, you know what, that's the truth. Why? And he talked about it from Scripture, why it is the truth, why it's reliable, why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so these men stood up for God. We're not going to bow down to your image. We're not going to bow down to your gods. And we see these men not just willing to stand up for God, but they're willing to accept the consequences of their obedience. They knew. They knew the moment that they stood up exactly what was going to happen to them. They counted the cost which Jesus regularly in the Gospels tells his disciples, if you're going to come and follow me, you need to count the cost. There's going to be a cost. Maybe you're going to have to give up your own sinful desires and the way that you want to live for yourself. Maybe it's going to cost you some family members. Maybe it's going to cost you your job. Maybe it's going to cost you your life. These men knew what the cost was. They were willing to accept the consequences of their obedience. Nebuchadnezzar, and I pointed it out before, he says, who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Guess what? His power didn't stand a chance against God's power. But he asked this question, and in my translation, and you guys may have gotten a little squeamish depending on what your translation read. Mine said that their response was this. If the God we serve exists, 
then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. Your translation may, may not say it that way. Your translation may say, if it be so, God can do this. Okay? You need to understand that one, in the Hebrew, this is a difficult passage to render into the English. And so if you look at a variety of different English translations, you're going to see a few different renderings. Because they're trying to get an English statement that works well with what is being said in the context of the passage. I'm not saying that the version that I'm using is the best. There's an alternate one at the bottom of my Bible that, that, that gives a little maybe clearer understanding. It says, if the God whom we serve is willing to save us from the, burning, uh, the furnace of burning fire, then he will. They're not really questioning the existence of God. They're responding to the question that Nebuchadnezzar had asked. Is there a God who exists that can rescue you from my power? And they're saying, you know what? The God that we exist or that we serve, if he exists, he can do this because he's big enough. They're just answering his question. They're not saying, hey, we doubt that there's a God out there or that we're worshiping the wrong one. They're essentially saying the God that we serve, if he's willing to save us, he's going to. And if he's unwilling to save us, it doesn't matter. We're still not going to bow down to your God. Because we serve God Almighty. But they knew the cost. They knew what it was going to cost them. They said they don't even need to answer his question. They weren't even really willing to get into a debate about it. it the, their response was, we know whom we serve. We know that if it's up to his will that he saves us or not, it doesn't make any difference. But we're not serving your God because he's not the real God. We're not buying into your philosophies. Why? Because they're not biblical. We're not following your rules. Why? Because guess what? That's not the ones that God laid out for us. Now, I have to say right here that for some of us who know the Word of God and have read the Word of God, we should start thinking about other passages of Scripture that talk about how we are to respond to the governing authorities. It's not fair if I don't bring this up. You've got in Romans chapter 13 a statement that Paul makes that Christians, quite frankly, have talked about an awful lot in recent times. And sometimes we as Christians are unwilling to understand Scripture in light of other Scripture. And so we read for Romans 13, and we see that Paul says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. And then he goes on, he says, so then the one who resists the authorities opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on those who does wrong. Okay, we need to understand what the word of God is actually saying, not what we think it says or what we want it to say. Paul's talking about government in such a way that upholds what is good and punishes those who do evil. If I understand this passage in light of other scripture, like the one that we're reading, if we were going with the modern interpretation of Romans 13, we would say Nebuchadnezzar 
or excuse me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sinning against God because they disobeyed their governing authorities. I'm just, I'm just being fair here. We have looked at Romans 13 and said, this is just a blanket thing. Every time, all the time, no matter what, this is what we do because Paul said it in Romans 13. So what do you do about Peter and John who are arrested by the governing authorities in Jerusalem because they were preaching Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation? They were arrested. They were commanded not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. And their response in Acts chapter 6 was this. Let me read it for you. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because of the people, excuse me, because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. We know that James the lead elder in the church of Jerusalem was beheaded because, by the governing authorities, because he preached Jesus Christ. Though he was commanded not to, he did it anyway, and it resulted in his death. So if we're going to understand Scripture with other Scripture, we have to understand that there are times when a government may ask us or tell us or command us to do something that is clearly unbiblical. And we need to decide how we're going to respond to that in an obedient way to God. Now, that means that we need to understand the times when a government may say, you need to stop doing this, and we can say with certainty, no, the Bible commands me to do this, so I will continue to do it. When I used to head up the the Alpha program that we used to run here, There was a testimony during that program of two ladies from Iran who were arrested, who were abused and mistreated in the prison simply because they passed out New Testaments to people's mailboxes in a country closed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were disobeying their governing authorities. And yet they knew that people needed to hear the gospel and so they were willing to take the chance risk their lives to get New Testaments into people's mailboxes so people could hear about Jesus Christ and trust Christ as their Savior. Why? Because they were following what God commanded no matter what they heard from somebody else. There are times when that needs to take place, and we as Christians need to know our Scriptures well enough to say, you know what, this is one of these times where I'm going to stand up for God and I'm going to take the consequences that come with obedience. They knew that they were defying their governing authority. They knew that what the consequences were, and they were willing to take the consequences because they had to obey God first. And God made it abundantly clear that they were to worship no other gods. They were not to bow down to any other image of anything made either human being or created creature, they were never to bow down to another image and worship it. And they said, you know what, we are not going to do that because God commanded us not to. And what what happened? Well, what happened is exactly what they expected to happen. They were thrown into the blazing fiery furnace. 
They suffer the consequences to their obedience, knowing that God could save them or God could allow them to die, but it didn't make any difference to them. They were going to be obedient to God. And guess what? God was gracious enough to protect them. And the miracle in and of itself is amazing. And what comes out of this miracle and their obedience is even more amazing. Because the third thing that I want us to talk about is the fact that men, these were men who brought glory to God. That their response in this situation even caused the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar to glorify God. They got thrown bound hand and foot in there. The fire was so hot it killed the soldiers that threw them in. Probably the furnace that he used to, to, to smelt the gold and stuff to get that statue ready. And he heated it up and he threw them in expecting them to die. <clears throat> and what does he see? He doesn't see three, he sees four. Now there's nothing in this passage that tells us for sure whether or not this is a Christophany an appearance of Christ prior to his incarnation, or if it's simply an angel, a messenger from God, whether it's a pre-incarnate Christ or a messenger from God, an angel, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes there's a fourth guy in there. Hey, hold on. We threw three guys in there. Now there's four. And one has the appearance of a divine being, is what he says. He is so impacted by that that he pulls them out. I liked what one commentary writer said about this particular interaction. Says, the, the comment was this. We can't know for sure whether it was a pre-incarnate Christ or whether it was an angelic figure, but what we do know is this, that it's a physical demonstration of God's presence with these men in the midst of their distress. And how we respond as committed Christians to faithfully serving God in our workplace, in our homes, whatever it might cost us, we can know for sure that God's presence is with us in the midst of that. No matter what we're going through, we have the Holy Spirit of God walking with us. And we should be able to have the confidence in Almighty God that if He allows us to walk through that kind of distress because we are obedient to him, then he is going to meet our needs. He's going to provide for us. And if that results in our death, then guess what? We get to spend eternity with him in a body that's never going to break down, it's never going to get sick, it's never going to have pain. We're going to be able to bask in the glory of God for all eternity. Paul said that. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul knew as he was under house arrest, waiting to be executed by the emperor, because what? He shared the gospel everywhere and anywhere that he went. Contrary to what the Roman emperor said, he knew that whether or not he was going to be executed or not, it doesn't matter, because if he stays, he preaches the gospel to the Roman emperor's family around him. He had a chance to preach to the I want to say the king's guard, the emperor's guard, the praetorian. He looked at it and said, hey, look, if I'm under arrest and I'm going to languish here in prison, I'm going to reach as many people in, in this prison for Jesus as I can. I'm going to go out with a bang. 
But he said, you know what, if it's going to cost me my, my life, that's all right, because it's gain for me. This is a bonus, I get to be with Jesus. See, Paul had that confidence, because he knew that God was always going to do what was best. And we see that these men brought glory to God. What does Nebuchadnezzar say when he brings them out? He says, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who, he tr who trusted in him. They violated, he even says it, they violated the king's command. They risked their lives rather than to serve or worship any God except their own God. And he's glorifying God for it. See, these men brought glory to God, and in turn, a pagan king ended up bringing glory to God. One commentary writer says this, trials provide the context in which the faith of believers shines with unmatched clarity before the eyes of a watching world. And then he cites 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and I want to read this because it says this, in 1 Peter, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The commentary writer says it this way, it is precisely in the furnace that the reality of our faith is displayed most clearly. Yet in the midst of those trials and difficulties, the Lord promised that his people could count on his presence with them, ensuring that their trials would not utterly overwhelm them. That's why Poly, I think it was Polycarp, if it wasn't, it was uh, Justin Martyr said when he was getting ready to be burned alive, 80 and six years, I've served the Lord, and he's never let me down. Why would I deny him now? And then he's killed for his faith. Who has that kind of confidence? Someone that knows that he's given his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to save him for all eternity, and he's willing to serve him no matter what the cost, because that's what God's calling him to do. God's calling us to be faithful, church family, no matter what. But we need to know the Word of God well enough to know when to stand and how to stand. There are times when, you know what? We might not have to stand on a particular issue. Because it's not one that the Bible clearly states, this is the way it is. That we show grace and we show respect and we show honor. But there are times when we're instructed to do things or say things or think things that are clearly opposed to the Word of God, and we have to say, no, we are going to stand for God. We need to be in God's Word to know when we need to make those stands and stand firm on them. Are we willing to follow God no matter what the cost? I firmly believe that Unless the Lord steps in and does something absolutely incredible to turn our country around, these opportunities for us to stand, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, may be more frequent in the future. We need to be resolute as Christians to say, I'm going to stand up for God no matter what.